0: Section 4 of Brain and Personality. This is a Librevox recording. All Librevox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librevox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. Brain and Personality, or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind, by William Hannah Thompson. Section 5 The Faculty of Speech. Before entering upon the consideration of the faculty of speech, and its bearing upon the subject of our discussion, it is fitting to note the fact that no investigation of the human body itself affords the least explanation why man is man. There is nothing in his physical frame which truly separates him from other animals, because every member and organ of his body has its counterpart or analogue in the bodies of other animals. Man shares with other mammalia the same kind of lungs to breathe with, his blood circulates through the same kind of heart and arteries and veins, he digests and assimilates his food by the same kind of apparatus, with all its varieties of parts and accessories, his secreting glands, his muscles, his bones, and, in short, every other bodily thing in him is like unto theirs also not only the anatomy but the physiology that is the working of every physical element in man is so strictly in keeping with that of other mammals that much the greater part of our knowledge of human physiology is derived from investigations into the physiology of other animals we even deduce from experiments on them how either medicines or poisons may affect ourselves but there is one organ of his body which immediately suggests itself as necessarily a great exception to all this the mind of man what must its organ be how could the human brain be other than a most exceptional brain in the whole animal series this inference seemed so certain that the most diligent search was long continued for the physical counterpart in man's brain to his marvellous intellect nothing therefore could have been more disappointing than to discover that the brain of the chimpanzee, as far as structure goes, presents us with not only every lobe, but with every convolution of the human brain. The chief facts, indeed, respecting the functions of the different areas of our own brain cortex, so far determined by physiologists, have been deduced from experiments on the brains of anthropoid apes all attempts to demonstrate a new or superadded, or special collection or arrangement of gray matter in man's brain which no other animal possesses have failed ever since huxley showed against owen that the human brain has not even one peculiarity not found in a baboon's brain no one expects that the scalpel will reveal a single physical explanation as to why the mind of a baboon and the mind of a physiologist who dissects him are so infinitely apart if the similarity of brain formation and mechanism carried out in all details be according to that which is needed there would be no reason why baboons could not become philosophers or mathematicians man's body therefore including his brain leaves man himself wholly unexplained professor huxley puts the subject thus as to the convolutions the brains of the apes exhibit every stage of progress from the almost smooth brain of the marmoset to the orang and chimpanzee which fall but little below man and it is most remarkable that as soon as all the principal sulci fissures appear the pattern according to which they are arranged is identical with that of the corresponding sulci of man so far as cerebral structure goes therefore it is clear that man differs less from the chimpanzees and a orang- than these do even from the monkeys and that the difference between the brain of the chimpanzee and of man is almost insignificant when compared with that between the chimpanzee brain and that of a lemur but there is one physiological standard by which man can be truly measured which applies to him alone and which rounds his whole marvelous being his faculty of speech the immeasurable distance between man and every other animal on earth is fully accounted for by the existence the nature and the significance of man's words by the sayings of francis bacon we find ourselves in the presence of an intellect which grasps the principles of all knowledge In the words of Shakespeare, well nigh every experience of human life is vividly embodied. We are awed by the sublimity and the solemnity of the thoughts of him who expressed himself in the words of the 90th Psalm. So the more we ponder it, the more impassable grows the gulf between the minds of those who could speak thus, and the minds of dumb animals. They cannot be the same beings in kind, however similar their bodily relationships be, because the more we recognize what the presence of the Logos in man implies, the plainer becomes the reason why he stands alone in this world. Professor Huxley remarks on this subject, After passion and prejudice have died away, the same result will attend the teachings of the naturalist respecting that great Alps and Andes of the living world, man our reverence for the nobility of manhood will not be lessened by the knowledge that man is in substance and in structure one with the brutes for he alone possesses the marvellous endowment of intelligible and rational speech thus he stands as on a mountain top far above the level of his humble fellows and transfigured from his lower nature by reflecting here and there a ray from the infinite source of truth Man's Place in Nature Pages 119-132 footnote Regarded as a physiological study, the faculty of speech consists not in uttering words, but in the power of word-making. The primary truth about a word is that it only comes from mind. Apart from mind, it has no existence. Every word was originally made by a personality which first designed and invented it. If there be no personality there can be no making of a word hence no word ever came or can come into existence spontaneously no human being was ever born with a word a word therefore is an artificial human product the outgrowth of a need just as a knife was first made by someone who wanted to cut being purely human creations words like all man's works sooner or later grow old and die some of the finest languages ever spoken are now dead. Therefore it is not words as such which concern the physiologist, but the capacity for making them, for this is the faculty of speech itself. This faculty has all the characters of a fundamental physiological fact, because it is absolutely generic. No speechless race of man has yet been found, however low we go in the scale of human intelligence. Or however isolated the race and every speech of savage tribe consists like every other speech not of so many sounds but of verbs nouns and partitives that is with all of the distinctly mental elements of true language not the least impressive fact about this exclusively human faculty is its limitless power of creation the remarkable excellence of the languages of many savage races is a testimony to the innate power of this human endowment thus the turks were originally a barbarous horde of high asia their language was wholly formed while they were so it is one of the finest if not the finest sounding languages in the world it has been the least modified by foreign influences or admixture of any language in europe it has never had any literature of its own worth mentioning but this is what max muller says of it we have before us in the turkish language of perfectly transparent structure and a grammar the inner workings of which we can study as if watching the building of cells in a beehive an eminent orientalist remarked that we might imagine the turkish to be the result of the deliberations of some famous society of learned men but no such society could have devised what the mind of man produced, left to itself, in the steeps of Tartary, and got it only by its innate laws, or by an intuitive power as wonderful as any within the realm of nature. Footnote. Science of Language. First Series. Page 309. End footnote. Mr. Crisp, in a paper read at the anthropological section of the british association of science august 1905 said the bantu languages of africa will express any idea however esoteric and will do it with extraordinary precision and often with great felicity a foreigner who has acquired one of them will often leave his own language to use a bantu word because it conveys his thought more aptly and tersely bantu proverbs and metaphors are often most incisive emphasizing with much power and delicacy what it is intended to say they are masters in the art of destructive criticism and their native shrewdness observation and wit render them dangerous disputants footnote nature november sixteenth nineteen o five page sixty six and footnote in the infancy of philology some theorists ascribe the beginning of words to phonetic imitations of natural sounds but this bow-wow theory as it has been called soon died after the recognition of the infinite human capacity for making languages as natural sounds are the same the world over if this view were correct some similarity in sound should be found in all languages among the words so derived which is by no means the case even in baby talk where most we would expect to find them the words vary in sound between the different races as much as do the words of adults thus the word bow wow meaning a dog is found only in english indeed one might as well trace a navigable river to a bottle of water as to suppose that the inexhaustible stream of human speech has any other source than the limitless spirit of man for owing to that fact Human speech is far richer than any one language possibly can be. There is much truth in the saying that a man doubles himself when he learns a new language. Whoever enters upon the study of one of the great languages of the East, such as the Arabic, soon notes not only how unlike any European tongue it is, but that it teems with words and constructions and meanings which have no equivalence in any Western speech the necessary conclusion therefore which the philologist must come to from all these facts is that the source of all words is the conscious mind or human personality itself it is not as some reasoners loosely state that language makes man but it is man who makes language the mind comes first and is altogether the beginning and cause of the word we need to emphasize this primary truth lest it escape us when we find that all words have their material anatomical seats in the brain upon which we can put our index finger otherwise we might infer that these material localities these speech areas of gray matter do themselves originate the words which are located there we shall find instead that the material seats of words in the brain matter no more make those words than the shelves of a library make the books arranged on them. The ultimate fact is rather, as revealed by the physiological study of the faculty of speech, that words are the instruments which the thinker invents or makes for himself for the purpose of defining his thought. Their relations to thought are just as definitely instrumental as the violinist's fingers are instrumental to the expression of his thoughts and feelings with the violin. The violinist thinks first in time before a finger moves, and the thinker thinks first in time before a word rises to his lips. By degrees, however, the mind becomes so habituated to think only by using its word instruments that in adult life thought without words becomes almost, if not quite, impossible, because in all thinking as such the man talks to himself in words, whether he will later talk to others, Or whether he be thinking alone if any one doubt this let him try to represent a true thought to his consciousness without its accompanying words it should be clearly recognized that this applies only to thought and not to feelings thoughts need words to become true thoughts but feelings do not need words to become true feelings in fact we often vainly try to express our feelings in words and find words fail us we must again disclaim here any excursion into the field of metaphysics for as we proceed with our discussion we will meet with illustrations of what will happen to an adult's power of pure thinking upon actual material damage to his brain-word apparatus when such damage is complete though manifestations of feeling may remain all recognizable signs of thought are gone having considered the relations of words to thoughts we now come to a crucial point in all our discussion namely the relations of words to the brain we can scarcely overstate the importance of certain modern discoveries on this subject because they revealed the first recognizable link between the immaterial and the material between mind and matter yet demonstrated in science that link never would have been guessed by metaphysicians for it was only physicians who could have discovered such facts by their noting the effects of small and strictly localized brain injuries the simplest way to illustrate this statement is to narrate some experience of physicians which teach these lessons of such extreme interest i was once hurriedly sent for by an old patient of mine I found her much disturbed by a strange experience which she immediately detailed in the well-chosen words of an educated woman. "'What is the reason, doctor,' she said, "'that everything in a book or newspaper is illegible to me? Last evening I sent an advertisement to the Herald for a waitress, and when the girls came this morning I could not read their references. I then took up the Herald and found that I could not read a word in it. At first I supposed my eyesight had failed— but I could see everything around the room as well as ever, and so also with my crochet work. I then opened the Bible, but could not read a word. What is the matter with me? I at once recognized that she had been struck with word blindness, and that this affection is technically termed. And from that day to her death two years later she never saw a word. In a moment of time she had become as illiterate as an Australian savage, and she remained so, Having calmed her excitement as best I could, I was able to note that she had absolutely no other disorder of speech and none of vision. She heard every word that came to her ears, and she could speak as fluently as ever, but no word could reach her consciousness through her eyes. All that which as yet had happened to her was that a little artery which supplies blood to a small area in the visual region of her brain had become plugged with the result of totally disorganizing the gray matter where eye words are registered the words the blood thereof which is the life thereof find their best illustration in that most living of things the brain gray matter for it immediately dies if deprived of its supply of blood another example of the total loss of the power of recognizing words occurred in a hospital patient but in him it was not words that came through the eye but words that came through the ear, which he could not recognize, so that he had what is termed word-deafness. He was a naturally intelligent young man under thirty, a clerk in a mercantile establishment, and was supposed to have become insane, because, though he talked incessantly, he talked only gibberish, and, moreover, he did not seem to understand what was said to him. It was soon found, however, that he could read and write as well as ever, so that to all questions that were put to him in writing he wrote correct answers the reason why he talked so incoherently was because he could not hear his own words and for the same reason all words addressed to his ears reached his consciousness only as sounds but were otherwise as unintelligible to him as the words of a language which he had never heard it was also words only that he could not hear for he heard and recognized all other sounds including the tick of a watch and the notes of a canary bird such cases of word deafness are due to the same kind of damage to a small locality in the auditory area of the brain as that which causes word blindness in the visual area a third form of loss is still more common a man retires to bed in good health but is found in the morning utterly unable to speak a word It is soon ascertained that he has no word deafness, for he evidently understands everything that is spoken to him, and that he has no word blindness because he can read, but he may not be able to utter a word, still less a sentence. In his distress he may make signs that he would like to write, but even if he can hold a pen well and begin to write, it is usually found that he cannot find the words to express himself by writing any more than he can by speaking thus it is that processes of disease enable us to analyze our brain mechanism of speech with all the precision of well devised experiments by this means we learn as otherwise we would not that speech is of two kinds the first kind consists of words which come to us and these are words which arrive through the ear and then go to a particular locality in what is called the first temporal convolution which is in the cortical area of hearing, where they are received as words. And the second consists of words which come to us through the eye in reading, and which go to an entirely different place from the ear words, for they are received as words in a special locality called the angular gyrus in the cortical visual area. It is to be remembered that there is no resemblance whatever between the sound of the word man, for example, and the written word man, for sound and sight are two wholly separate things and hence sound words and sight words have each their different brain registries modern invention has doubtless added a third word registry connected with the sense of touch by which the blind are enabled to read but its special locality has not yet been identified the second kind of speech consists of words which go from us or which we ourselves utter this division of the faculty of speech is wholly different from the first because in that we are passive and receive the words while in this we are active and ourselves give forth the words we do this either by word of mouth or by word of hand in writing and to thus express ourselves an entirely distinct mechanism is required because it involves muscular movements It is therefore called motor speech, and proceeds from an altogether different place in the brain cortex, in a region from which muscular movements are initiated, particularly in those regions which govern the movements of the tongue and other muscles of articulation, and which are also in proximity to the motor areas governing the hands. Here, in a small patch of gray matter, not larger than a hazelnut, located in a part of a convolution called broca's convolution from the french surgeon who first identified its connection with speech is stored every word that can be spoken footnote rosenstein quoted by sir william gowers diseases of the nervous system volume 2 page 115 second edition 1901 and footnote Let this remarkable piece of matter be separately destroyed, as it often is by a gush of blood from a ruptured artery, and the consciousness is utterly unable to find a word with which to express itself. It still may have its power to receive all words from others through the ear or eye, but not a word can it communicate in return. The point of an umbrella once neatly destroyed this last or uttering center in a man, who was brought to Bellevue Hospital wholly unable to speak a word though he could hear words by his ear and read with his eye as well as ever the story told by his friends was that in a drunken row a man poked the tip of an umbrella into his eye but instead of seriously injuring that organ it passed over the eyeball into his brain just where the uttering speech centre lies resting on only a thin plate in the bony roof of the orbit from the situation of the small hole made in the roof of the orbit this pointed stick could have gone nowhere else and from his subsequent symptoms it evidently caused no hemorrhage or other damage except just and broke his convolution while i was describing his case to a large class in my clinic he saw a student with an umbrella in his hand and pointing to it he burst into tears meanwhile he had a wholly uninjured Broca's convolution in his other hemisphere but though he wept at his inability he could not make it talk for reasons which we will subsequently explain these different derangements of speech due to organic changes in the word mechanism are technically called aphasias and divided into the sensory forms when eye or ear words are deranged or motor aphasia when broca's convolution is damaged now as we have remarked before the gray matter of no one of these three seats of words originates or makes any words they are simply registered there for use as they would be on a printed page or on a wax leaf of a phonograph and how that is done we will learn further on we have already likened those speech areas to the shelves of a library with words arranged thereon like so many volumes, and that something very similar to this is actually the case, is demonstrated by facts such as these. When a man sets about to learn a language new to him, he has to add another brain shelf for that purpose, because the old shelf has too many books on it to allow any room for a row of entirely new words. Professor Henshelwood, of the University of Glasgow, publishes the case of a highly educated man who was brought to him for an attack of ordinary word blindness. Footnote. Lancet, February 8, 1902. Also his book, Letter, Word, and Mind Blindness, London, 1901. End footnote. He could read his native English in print only with the greatest difficulty, and words in writing scarcely at all. As Dr. Henshelwood was told that the patient had learned Greek, Latin, and French, he first tested him with Greek, when the patient was surprised and delighted to find that he could read Greek perfectly, as he did paragraphs in Homer, the Theusodides, and Xenophon. Then, testing his Latin, he could read it far better than he could English, but not as perfectly as Greek, while in French he made more mistakes than in Latin, but still read it a great deal better than he could his native english the only explanation of course of this case is that the injury to his brain matter nearly ruined the english shelf then damaged to a less extent the french and still less the latin shelf while the greek shelf escaped entirely the same arrangement holds true also in the auditory word mechanism dr Henschel wood reports the case of a frenchman who made his living in glasgow as a teacher of french for a number of years during which he learned english after returning to his native country he had a stroke of apoplexy from which he became word-deaf in french while his english shelf remained intact so that his wife could speak to him but only in english but while such instances indicate that these shelves are arranged one above the other Other facts show that the books may be so jammed sideways, so to speak, that not one of them can be got out, in which case the event proves that on each shelf the verbs are placed first, the pronouns next, then the prepositions and adverbs next, and the nouns last. A man was brought to my clinic who could not speak a word. My diagnosis was that he probably had a tumor-like swelling in the speech area, which might be absorbed by giving him iodine of potassium i had him removed then so that he could not hear what i was to say while i told the class that if he recovered he would very likely get his verbs first and his nouns last when he returned two weeks afterward on my showing him a knife he said you cut a pencil you write etc three weeks later he had all his prepositions that he could name no noun for several weeks after that the reasons for all this are that verbs are our innermost and therefore first learned words because we know that we see we hear etc before we know what it is we see or hear while nouns represent things outside of us to which we lastly give names the nouns which we learn after all the others and therefore forget the soonest are the names of persons so that elderly people very commonly complain how they cannot recall persons names these cerebral library shelves may also be partially instead of completely damaged by accidents to the brain with results not unlike those which often disturb the equanimity of a student when the house-cleaning season arrives and women invade his study for a general dusting of his books for days afterwards he picks up the wrong book because it has been put back where it does not belong so after some brain-shock a person may be able to speak but the wrong word often vexatiously comes to his lips just as if his broken shelves had become badly jumbled to this condition the term paraphasia is given there may be shelves in these cerebral libraries however for other things than words Professor Edgren of Stockholm has published the records of a number of patients who had lost the power of reading music, though they could still read words, that is, they became music-note-blind instead of word-blind. In Dr. Henschelwood's patient mentioned above, who could read Greek but not English, the reverse took place, for he could still read music as well as ever, though he could not read a sentence in English. The most interesting, however, of these separate registries is that for figures, as the damage to the speech apparatus often involves more than one registry, the following record of a case in my own experience is of interest, because it proves that if only one of the three speech mechanisms remain uninjured, the personality can use that one sufficiently well for all practical purposes. A gentleman who, during a long, active business career, had accumulated a fortune, had an attack of apoplexy which, while causing no muscular paralysis, made him both word-blind and wholly unable to utter a word. He remained in this condition for seven years, but what brought him to my office, in company with his lawyer and only son, was that my opinion was sought as to his competence to make a will. His lawyer produced one in which the patient devised a certain amount of property, consisting of pieces of real estate and of other items, each very definitely mentioned to his married daughter, which was, in the testator's opinion, a very fair division of his property between his two children. His manufacturing business, however, he devised exclusively to his son. Learning that his son-in-law was dissatisfied with this arrangement, and might induce his wife to contest her father's will after his death, by a claim to a share in the profits of the factory, on the ground that in his condition he was incapable of making a will, he came to me as an expert to give my written opinion on the subject. It was naturally felt by his son and his lawyer that a very plausible case might be made out to the jury by the other side, that a man who could not himself read a word of his will nor utter a sound by which he could express what he wanted, might easily be imposed upon by the persons interested to do so. In my examination of him, it was found that though he could not read, and likewise could not write, as his utterance speech mechanism was wholly ruined, yet he could both read and write figures as well as ever, in fact that he was unusually adept in all arithmetical calculations." meantime nothing could persuade him to retire from business and so for seven years he continued to buy and sell as he had always done for he wrote the sums for all transactions and pointing to the figures with his pencil the bargain had to be forthwith concluded in illustration he produced a memorandum book of his in which were entered numerous such accounts particularly directing my attention by his finger to one of them in which he had bought a third interest in a business enterprise, and in which he had entered all payments correctly on that basis, the sums varying according to the year's profits. As questions relating to the testamentary capacity of aphasics have come up in many courts of both Europe and America, quite a literature has grown up on this subject, and I proceeded to test this particular case according to its accepted rules. I took the will and looked it carefully over before him, and then read it aloud, item by item, to each of which he nodded assent, until I designedly misread one stipulation as in favor of the son, when it was actually in favor of the daughter. The old gentleman was furious at my supposed mistake, and was quick to correct any other inaccuracies in my reading, however minor in importance they were i therefore could give a decided opinion that he was entirely competent to devise a will and i was glad to learn afterwards that this precautionary measure on his part prevented any trouble in settling the estate when he died some months afterwards the place for registering figures is doubtless somewhere in the visual area of the cortex but in his case so removed From the eye-word registry that it escaped damage as completely as his ear-word mechanism had done meanwhile this patient had repeatedly tried to learn to speak and to read again after the sudden onset of his calamity but though he endeavored with characteristic perseverance to get back some of the lost parts of his speech yet he failed altogether mentally he was just the same and his personality with all its peculiarities remained the same. But those particular chords of the instrument were irretrievably broken. Why he, just like the man whose uttering center was destroyed by the umbrella tip, could not substitute another set of precisely similar chords which he had in his brain, and which also were perfectly intact, we will explain in the next chapter because that explanation covers the whole subject of how we talk at all. End of Section 5